A listener's note. Some episodes of this podcast include descriptions of violence, sudden death, and other traumatic experiences. We do not recommend this podcast for young listeners. Firefighters lead surprisingly public lives, certainly not on the scale of celebrities seen on award shows or social media, but they often live and work in the tight-knit communities that they serve and meet many different people on the job. And those people start to recognize them, even when they're not in uniform, say when they're going to get pizza with their families on a Friday night. Then there's the nature of their work. Firefighters and EMS personnel respond to sometimes dramatic events that attract media attention. Still, nothing is more public than a firefighter's line-of-duty death. Each one is a matter of public record. The U.S. Fire Administration tracks and collects information on the causes of on-duty fatalities to prevent future losses. Family members who are left behind are rarely prepared for the sudden spotlight on their very private pain. I'm not going to speak for everybody else, and I, I think some widows may feel this way. You have to act a certain way as the fireman widow. You have to look a certain way. You have to, when you're in public, you have to talk a certain way. In this episode of the Grief in Progress podcast, we'll meet Sari Harris, a woman who went to bed a young wife and co-parent and woke up to the startling reality that she was a firefighter's widow and single mom of six boys. Sari shares how she and her family navigated the public and private aspects of their grief journey and honored the dreams they shared with her husband, Walter, even after he was gone. She met her husband, Walter, when they were in elementary school. I met him when I was in kindergarten, and he was in the first grade. Yeah, so we had the, you know, the little elementary school puppy love, like, you're my boyfriend, you're my girlfriend. We had that all through, probably starting, I think it started around third grade, on and off. So not that we were, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend since the third grade, but, you know, one, you know, one little bit, we, he was my boyfriend, then we would have a, you know, have a little tiff and break up. Then he was my boyfriend again in the fifth grade, so on and off. The two remained friends over the years, even though they saw other people. Suri became a mom as a teenager, and Walter was one of the first people to visit her and her newborn son, Robert, after they came home from the hospital. Still, it wasn't until after high school that Suri and Walter graduated from puppy love and friendship to a committed relationship. They had a son, Patrick, in 1992, and married on Valentine's Day the following year. By that time, Walter had already become a firefighter, a job for which he was perfectly suited. It just fit him. He, he, Walter has always been the one that wants to help in some type of way. So it totally, it totally fit his character. So, I, you know, he wanted to do it, and I was proud of what he was doing. There was a fireman directly that lived directly across the street that had talked to him about being a fireman. He was thinking about it a while. He was going to school, trying to decide what he wanted to do, and then just finally decided to take the plunge and, and do it. So I was proud of him. Like I said, it totally fit him. Sari earned her bachelor's degree in social work in 1994. Walter encouraged her to go straight into grad school, but she knew their family needed the extra income, and she wanted to start working in her chosen field. I started off as a foster care worker. Again, just wanting to help. I've always had the love for families, a love for children, a love for making the pieces fit together. So social work was it. And then within social work, there are so many arenas and so many avenues that you can take that just seemed to fit working with families in some sort of way. 
seeing if there's anything, any resources that can be provided so that the kids can be safe at home, making sure they're safe while they're away from home, trying to get them back together. And so that was that just became my love. It's demanding, um, but someone has to do it. It's rewarding. And that's where I met my first son, James. James was on my caseload. Just fell in love with him. James was one of 10 children and the oldest of eight siblings to enter the foster care system. Serene knew something was special about James the first time she met him. He was just a, he was just a different child. Kids in foster care, they have all these issues, of course, because of things that's happened in their life, right? And so when people are looking to adopt or looking to help kids in foster care, most of the time, a lot of the times, it's the younger children, it's the uh, little cute children that have little issues or that are exhibiting little issues. Um, so the older children get left out a lot. And James was 12 or 13 when I met him, and he was just, he was so serious, and he was so um, determined, and he just had this, he had this idea of wanting to be greater and do greater, and that that was all over his face. When you would talk to him, he would look you straight in your eye, and it was just something different about him. When it looked like James would age out of the foster care system, Sari wanted to intervene, but she needed to make the decision with her husband and co-parent. I just went home and I told Walt, we, we have to do something. And he said, well, what you mean do what? I'm like, well, we got to do something. We got to help him some type of way. <laughs> we got to bring him home. And I'm like, okay, well, just meet him. You just got to meet him and you'll see what I'm... And he met him and he felt the same way. It was just all over him. The Harrises adopted James when he was 14 years old. Sari later gave birth to Caleb, Walter Jr., and Christian, completing their family of eight. Meanwhile, Walter continued to grow his fire service career at a station 15 minutes from their home. Walter worked at Engine 23 and Squad 3. He didn't have, like, one particular job on the, on the squad or on the engine, and it was not the norm for firemen, well, in Detroit at least. Firemen are usually, they stay in one at one station for a while, and then after a while they're, they go to another station. He, it was unusual for him to be at his place where he trained. He was at that place the entire career. But that was just because my watcher was special and they loved him. That was home for him. He loved Engine 23, Squad 3. I remember the phone number. I remember the address. He just loved it there. Walter was one that once he found something that works, he was just going to stick with it. And so that worked for him. He loved the people. He loved the neighborhood. He loved everything about it. In 2000, 18-year-old James Hill Harris followed his dad into the fire service. While they did not work at the same firehouse, they experienced the firefighter bond. They shared that. Um, he was given uh, a couple of medals of honor, and Walt, Walt was able to attach the medal onto him. So they had a, a lot of father-son moments that, were, that was very pivotal. Yeah, he walked them through that part. You know, being a, like the freshman in high school, having a kind of senior, senior uh, relative that walk you through the school and show you things, they had that kind of connection. As both a wife and a mother to a firefighter, Serene knew that her loved one's line of work put them in harm's way. But that aspect of their jobs wasn't top of mind. At times, you would think about it. 
when things just go on day after day, we kind of take things for granted. It was brought to the forefront when we would see something in the media, see some story where a fireman got hurt or a fireman almost got hurt or hear stories within the department where something happened. Then it's brought to the forefront and you are more careful and you give an extra tight hug or, you know, say an extra prayer before they leave. But no, I can't say on the day-to-day that it was something that I was overly concerned about or consumed with day-to-day. I, I can't. I can't say that. That all changed on November 15th, 2008. I heard about Walt being hurt by uh, a phone call. Someone called me around 2 o'clock in the morning, and I don't remember what official it was right now. That it, it, it escapes me. I don't remember who that was. But I got a call Um, And they said, Walter's been hurt. He's at the hospital. We're going to come pick you up. And I remember the first thing I said was, what color car do you drive? Because, Walter, we we have conversations all the time about, you know, people getting hurt. And, you know, if if something happens to me, somebody's going to let you know. If If they come to get you and they're driving a red car, it's probably, you know, very serious. So I remember the first thing out of my mouth is, what color car do you drive? And he said, he, he was kind of taken aback. He said, what? I said, what color car do you drive? And he said, oh, it's the red uh, fire department car. And I said, oh, no, I'll drive. Like, as if me driving myself would change something. But I just remember that so vividly. I wasn't going to let him come pick me up. I had four kids at home. First, I remember going to tell the oldest in the home, which was Patrick, Dad's been hurt. I'm getting, I need you to get up and be with your brothers because it's, you know, early in the morning, I'm getting ready to go. And he said, No, I'm coming with you. So now I have to think, okay, well, now I have to get somebody else because he said he's coming with me. So, so I had to call my mother. So she came over to be with the younger three while Patrick and I went to the hospital. As I was getting dressed, I said, well, I was shaking and I, you know, couldn't find anything to put on. And I finally decided to call him back, who the person that called me and said, well, just, yes, you can come get me. I'll allow you to come get me because my common sense started kicking back in. Like, it doesn't matter what color car he drives. If you ride in the car, it's not going to change. Whatever's going on, you probably don't need to be driving. And now the mom kicked in, like, you're going to be riding with your son. If something ha- if you, you know, something happens to you, you, you're crying, you can't, you need to be riding with somebody. I remember getting in the car. I remember the ride. It seemed, it's probably about a 20, 25-minute ride to the hospital. But it, it seemed as if it was two minutes. I don't, I don't remember why it seemed so short. As soon as he pulled up to the hospital, I remember seeing it seemed like every fireman in Detroit outside of the hospital. And I'm thinking, why? My first thought then was, who's working? Somebody's supposed to be working. What is going on? And I saw two firemen hugging, two of our close friends I was hugging. And I knew it wasn't good the way that they were hugging. And I just remember seeing their embrace thinking, hmm, I don't want to get out of the car. So I got out of the car and I walked in and it's just a, all I see is firemen. I can't, I, I just see firemen. I don't see nurses. I don't see that. I see firemen. And I walked in and everybody kind of looked, turned and looked at me and looked at Patrick. 
And one of our other close friends came walking up to me, like wanting to hug me. And I remember pushing him back, like, don't touch me. Like, what? Like if he touched me, like that was going to mean something had happened. I just didn't want him to touch me. And I just kept saying, he's gone. He's gone. Is he gone? Is he gone? I wanted someone to answer. Is he gone? Um, they finally told me that he had passed. Walter Patrick Harris Sr. died at the hospital. He was 38 years old. Information about what happened when Walter and Squad 23 responded to a house fire started as a trickle and came flooding in. The fire was put out, and they were actually cleaning up. They were getting ready. It was, you know, just a It wasn't even a, a, one of the big fires that they're used to having. They were, you know, pulling the line, wrapping the, wrapping the uh, line up, and getting ready to leave. And because the fire was intentionally set, one of the beams, one of the major supporting beams, was really weak. They put the water on it to put the fire out, and it was really weak, and it collapsed. When the guys saw the roof coming in, the bosses were saying, okay, come out, come out, and some guys were leaving out. So they got outside, and their thing to do is to call roll to make sure that they have everybody. So they're calling roll, and everybody is um, answering, and they got to Walter's name, and of course he's not answering. So they went back in, and they're calling his name, and everybody has a an alarm on. So in cases like this, it's supposed to be going off when it's dark and it's smoky and you can't find someone. This alarm is supposed to be going off. His alarm wasn't going off. So he went back outside, and they're, you know, like, where is he? They're, we're calling the name, not answering. We don't hear the alarm going back in. They finally found him, and they're trying to get the rubble off of him and off his chest. They found him, and they brought him outside. So then old Thorough Sari goes through, you know, what happens with the alarm, who's supposed to check the alarm, and that's the part that I did not want to do because I, I didn't want to be pointing the finger and putting the blame anywhere. Um, but they're trying to tell me the story and trying to give me the pieces, I guess, that they will want. So I got it right away. Didn't necessarily want all that right away. Suddenly, the stories of a firefighter hurt or killed in the line of duty weren't happening to someone else. They were happening to Sari. Still in shock, her protective instincts kicked in. The next thing I remember, it was like bits and pieces, so it wasn't, you know, consecutive. The next thing I remember is being in a small room and I remember being very protective, like I was, of who I, who I was going to be in the car with and who was going to touch me. I was very protective of this room for some reason. I just didn't want anybody but my special people to be in this room. So it was Patrick and myself, and I'm calling my other sons, the James and Robert, the two oldest. And when they came, I wanted them in the room. And I remember anybody that wanted to come into the room... <laughs> I was just saying, I had, <laughs> I had one of the nurses kind of, I know she, poor thing, standing there like, who is it? They, she had to report to me who it was that wanted to come into the room before I gave her permission to open the door to allow them in the room. I don't know, this protection thing just came, it just came out. The, another thing that I remember is being honored and appreciative as well as annoyed that the mayor... At that time, he stepped in to be the mayor, um, had come. And it was because I was just thinking this duality of emotions I had going on. It was like I was appreciative and, and 
and honored that they would come. But I was also annoyed because I'm like, you don't even know my husband and why are you here? Like, I don't want all the political pieces. I don't want that just for your face because he's in here and he wants he's in my protective room and he wants to shake my hand and he wants someone to take his picture while he's shaking my hand. It was just annoying. Like that really annoyed me. I remember that. I remember having to call my mother who was at home with my three boys uh, and telling her that he passed. And I remember her just yelling and I had to hang up the phone on her because you know, that was her. She couldn't cope. So that was her. She just burst out yelling. And I'm just like, I'm trying to handle all the things. I can't deal with the yelling. So I just hung up on her. I couldn't call his mother. His mother, his parents were in Louisiana. And I did not want to be the one to call his mother and tell her that her son had passed. I think I told my sister to make that phone call. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't bear. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. You know, everybody processes different, and I think that's just my way of processing. I, I automatically jump into do-it mode. What's next? What do I have to do? What's step one, two, three, four? Whereas other people, and not saying one way is better than another, some people are not able to do anything, and they're just, they're just frozen. I, I, I'm not frozen. I, I have to go the other way. But that leaves, like, you need time to just sit down and be able to just breathe and figure some things out. So it's not always good to be the person that just got to go, got to go, got to go. But that's the, way I, that's the way I handle it. Taking charge and kind of organizing. I don't know. And I, that's the social worker. That's the, I don't know what all that is. But organizing who was going to actually go down to the uh, the basement of the hospital to actually see his body for the last time after I organized all the shifts and everybody going. Um, I remember the hallway, again, just being filled with firemen and me saying, I'll keep you posted on what's next. We can all, you know, somebody has to work now. You can all, you can go back to work, go back. We can leave the hospital. And I remember uh, Verdine, one of our female firefighter friends, she looked at me and she said, Sari, nobody's going anywhere until you go. Nobody is going to go anywhere. Like, we're all here. And I'm just like, oh, okay, well, okay, well. <laughs> the ride home with our pastor at the time, the radio stations, because everything was so publicized, the radio stations was talking about the incident. And, they, you know, a Detroit fireman's gotten killed and him hurrying, trying to reach and turn the radio off. In the days following Walter's death, Sari answered reporters' questions while wearing her husband's fire department jacket and making sure her church could accommodate the 3,500 people expected at the funeral. Investigators ruled the fire arson. A subsequent criminal investigation led to a man confessing to deliberately setting the fire in exchange for $20. He pleaded guilty and testified against the man who hired him to start the fire as a way to get insurance money. My husband was gone. It didn't matter whether it was intentionally set. It didn't matter if it was, you know, an accident. My husband was gone. It um, immediately, it didn't have this great big effect on me. The more the time went on and the as we were going through the court hearings and for the criminal charges and all that, it was just like, this is so stupid. A person's life is gone because of someone's greed, because of insurance money. Um, but then also, 
like the social work and the other side of me is like, well, nobody was trying to. People do, and not that they should, but people do insurance jobs on cars. People do insurance jobs on homes. People do all type of insurance jobs and fraud all the time. Nobody intends for anybody to be hurt, but this is a reality and this is what could happen when you do these type of things. So I had the, again, the dual emotions going on all throughout the trial, all throughout any time I would think about it. I decided to participate in the criminal um, trial. I think in the very beginning, there was no thought process to it. Um, You know, I talked about earlier how we just feel like we have to do these things and we got to jump in and be the the correct grieving widow and do all the correct things. I think in the very beginning, when the trial happened, I don't think that I took time to think about if this was something I really wanted to do. I just felt that I should be there. Again, like the firemen were at the hospital, the firemen were at my house, the firemen were there too. Like they were, I don't know who was working during those times because every day, the the trial went on for weeks. Every day, you would drive up to the courthouse and it would be lines of fire trucks. They feel that they had to tell some of the firemen not to come in because they feel the courtroom. They were they feel the hallways. I love my family. They were just there. They were going to be there. And so because they were there, three who wants to take care of them, who wants to take care of her family, who wants to be the widow that's doing the right thing, I was going to be there front and center too. So they're there in the hallways, and I'm walking through the hallways, greeting everybody. I'm just doing the right thing every day for weeks. Yeah, so there was no thought in the very beginning because the news cameras are going to be there, and everybody's going to be there, and and I have to be there showing. Not that I wouldn't have wanted to be there. I'm just saying I didn't even give myself a chance to sit and think about, is this something that's beneficial for me? Is it beneficial for my family? Is this what I want to do? I was just the dutiful, the dutiful widow. Jenny Woodall, grief specialist at the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation, says Saree's story of wanting to do the right thing and put on a brave face in public matches many other fire hero families' experiences. Public safety officer deaths are both public deaths and very private personal deaths. And I do think that is one unique aspect of our fire hero family community that everyone there understands what it is like to have all of the scrutiny, commentary, politics, gossip about their person who died. There are often lawsuits in the wake of traumatic firefighter deaths, and that can be very difficult for families. I've heard many people describe having to sort of put their grief aside in order to get through that. And so the real cascade of emotions may come after the trial is resolved, which sometimes takes a long time. The arsonist was sentenced in 2010 to 17 to 30 years in prison as part of a plea agreement. The person convicted of hiring him to set the fire was sentenced to spend at least 41 years in prison, a punishment that the judge said was part of society's duty to protect first responders like Walter Harris. The defendant continues to deny his involvement in the fire and has appealed his case many times, as recently as 2021, when the court hosted a video proceeding. But Suri has modified her role in the process. 
the last Zoom hearing, I, I, I didn't even show up. Because at this point, I could be doing something else. My kids were out of school that day. I wanted to do something with them, and I was actually looking at my schedule to see, trying to guess when the hearing would be over. And so I, I said, this is, he's still affecting my life. I don't want him to affect my life anymore. Whether he's, if he gets out tomorrow, it won't bring Walter back. Uh, whatever happens to him, happens to him. He has to deal with not accepting responsibility for things. He has to deal with that. I'm going to do what I want to do with my sons. So I didn't show up. Sari says the shift in perspective is just part of the twist and turns in her grief journey. I think grief is a journey because you never, it's all the, it's all the emotions, it's the ups and downs. It's, no, it's not a straight line. It's, you can be feeling one way one day, and that can be okay. And then another day you're feeling the total opposite, and that's okay too. It's all about getting back to what is your what does your life look like now and what is your sense of normal and what is what's working for you, what's not working for you. It's all it's all a journey, it's all connected. That's why I call it a journey. It's not just like one straight line and you just you just arrive and you're just there. And you just get over it. It's just not that way. We have this publication that is called The Journey. And I have also read some really scathing pieces written by people who hate that term as an analogy for grief. (laughs) Um, I think it's an imperfect word to describe what happens. It is a really, it is one of those like polarizing words that some people really love and some people really don't. It just looks different along the way. It looks a little bit different. So whereas in the beginning, in 2008, it may have looked like me grabbing every single thing around my house that reminded me of Walter and taking it up to my room and closing my door and me having just one little pathway to my bed because I had to protect everything and have everything in my— and nobody except my children being allowed to sit in his chair for like— How long, Kayla? Maybe three years. I I don't know. If anybody made a mistake and came in and visited and sat in the chair, I'm like, no, 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 get out out this chair. Um, So comparing it to now, where now I can just finding one piece of jewelry that reminds me of him. It, It looks different. You know, a trip has an itinerary. A journey, I think, is more of finding your way as you go. Grief changes us. Loss changes us we do not end up in the same place where we started. I've learned to deal with it by just allowing the things that come up, just allowing them to come up and not trying to put them in a category of good or bad or just allowing, identifying where they came from and just letting them be. Every, not saying any, nothing has to be a certain way. And I think that I thought that way for a long time and that put a lot of pressure on me, that put a lot of pressure on my children. So I've learned to deal with it through allowing, through prayer, through yoga, through forgiveness. Um, when people didn't say the right things, when they, um, because most of the time, most of the time people mean well. Um, So a lot of forgiveness and just acceptance of what is. 
Sari found the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation early in her journey. Everybody was great about giving me all the resources. They, you know, you may be eligible for this. Check this out. Um, so I remember the first event was our when we were invited to the Memorial Weekend, and that was uh, October of 2009. They took care of everything. Any Like, we didn't have to think about anything. They handled reservations for things. They handled food. They handled, uh, you know, transportation from the from the airports and just setting up hotels and I think my mother went all the kids went they just handled everything it was beautiful it was beautiful just being there with other family members um seeing the honorary flag it was just it was it was overwhelming it was beautiful though I think I've been to four of their wellness conferences uh one of my Caleb came to one of the wellness conferences with me and the conferences they have for, it's not just spouses, but they have, it's for spouses, for parents, for siblings. It's, they do an amazing job about covering things for everybody. So those are the wellness weekends. My The younger kids have been to the uh, comfort zone camps. They were in the mountains and they just, just being able to be around children and young adults who have, going through the same things that they've gone through, it means a lot. Grief has a way of bringing people together that would have never been brought together at all. Different political views, different races. You know, if you lose a loved one, that'll make you come together. All that other stuff just kind of fades away. Learned a lot throughout these years. <laughs> I wish it were some uh, a guidebook and that's why I'm actually uh, writing a book. It should be out the end of this year, um, sort of a, a guidebook that addresses little bits and pieces of all that. Because I wish it was one when back in 2008, because I look for one. I look for them. It is called The Widow's Oil. Um, the Widow's Oil, a guidebook for young widows, because I... I'm serious about when I said I was actually looking for something, some type of resource just to give me, make me seem somewhat normal in these thoughts that I was having, these dualities and trying to figure it out. Because you think of a widow, you think of an older woman most of the time. So nothing related to me. I didn't feel that anything related to me. It was, you know, you have all these years together and so this is what you do. And although Walter and I did have a lot of years together, what they were talking about didn't address the things that I needed, the self-care, the financial stuff, the relationship stuff, children at different ages. It didn't address that. And so that's what I'm addressing in my book. In addition to writing the book, Sari and her family have pursued some of the dreams that they shared with Walter. He always talked about me going back to school to get my graduate degree. I did that. We talked about uh, international travel with our children. They've been many places, many times, all of them. We did that. We talked about just being supportive for our sons so that they could achieve whatever it is that they felt they wanted to do. And I think I've done my best to do that. That included supporting son James's decision to move into the Arson Investigation Division of the Detroit Fire Department three years after his father's death. Robert is an attorney. 
Patrick is a personal trainer, Caleb is a massage therapist, and Walter Jr. and Christian are in high school. Sari says that part of what helped her redefine what it means to be a firefighter widow and single mom is remembering that there was more to Walter than his job. I think everybody, anybody that knows him or has read any of the stories or whatever knows that he was this, you know, just the, they called him the gentle, gentle giant. So big teddy bear, love people, love his family, love service. That's all true. Good man that became a great man. But what I would want people to know, and it's kind of out of the ordinary, I guess, is what a lot of messages would be, is that he was not a perfect man. And I think that that's important because when we're left as the widows, as the children, as the parents of the fallen heroes, and they are they are definitely that, so I'm not taking any of the hero away from it, the fact that they're not perfect and so we're not perfect kind of gets pushed to the side sometimes. And because it gets pushed to the side and the hero part of them is pushed to the forefront, it kind of forces us sometimes to be in these positions that we don't want to be in or or feel uncomfortable being in and it's not being our genuine selves. He was a full-fledged human person to them, and all of a sudden in the news or in the press, that person is being talked about as a hero, and there was just there's just really a disconnect I think sometimes it's very important to a lot of fire hero families that their firefighter be honored as a hero. But I think it's also important for us to remember that those are deeply personal losses. So I think if we are reminded every once in a while that they weren't perfect, so we don't have to be perfect because there's no perfect people, that may help to relieve some of the pressure somewhere along the way and help somebody. So that's what I would like to just remind everybody about. On the next episode of Grief in Progress, Fire Hero family members often continue their loved one's commitment to service. We'll explore the ideas of legacy and co-destiny and how they show up in big and small ways in those left behind. People like Liza Onkst and Rachel Prouty, two women who became friends at a retreat for young adult survivors and who are now both pursuing helping careers in social work. Thank you for listening to the Grief in Progress podcast, a production of the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation. If you've enjoyed this six-episode season of the podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving a positive review. To learn more about the Grief in Progress podcast and the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation, visit firehero.org.